Hello, hello, and welcome to the news, our weekly cultural roundtable. We are looking at two different works today. They're different, but not maybe not entirely different. Uh, one of them is The Lost Daughter. This is an adaptation of Elena, uh, an Elena Ferrante novel. Uh, it is directed by Maggie Gyllenhaal, uh, and it stars, well, two of the really bright lights of British cinema and television, which, assuming there's any difference anymore, uh, Olivia Colman and Jesse Buckley, also Dakota Johnson. Uh, we'll be talking about that first, then we'll move on to Station Eleven, a 10-episode series on HBO Max based on an incredibly uh, gripping uh, novel of the same name. Uh, it uh, takes place during the onset of and then uh, 20 years after uh, a pandemic far more deadly than the one we're in the middle of right right now uh, and is full of Shakespeare and graphic novels and all kinds of interesting ways in which culture either sustains or doesn't sustain the people who left to wander the earth in the absence of 99% of humankind. Sounds like fun, right? It actually is more fun than I'm making it sound. All right. Uh, and I want to make it sound like fun that we have uh, one of uh, uh, our truly amazing panels today, Rebecca Castellani, co-founder of Quiet Corner Communications and a freelance writer, Tanisha Dugan, director, producer, and arts consultant, Irene Papoulis, uh, teaches writing at Trinity College. Uh, and so we're going to be in with a lost daughter. Uh, before we uh, uh, have them all sound off about it, let's uh, sort of give you a little bit of the sound of the movie. This is um, an exchange between uh, Olivia Coleman. She plays a character named Lita, uh, a scholar who is taking a break from God knows what, but she's all by herself on a Greek island vacationing. Uh, and a character named Callie, uh, who is part of kind of a rowdy group uh, of, of other tourists who've been who've rented a big flashy pink villa and seem to have some uh, connections perhaps to the crime world. Uh, but uh, Callie is newly pregnant. She's accompanying uh, I know that the character of Nina, uh, this is taking too long to set up, <laughs> played by Dakota Johnson. And what you need to know to understand the clip too is earlier uh, this big rowdy and somewhat intimidating group has asked uh, Olivia Coleman's character Lita to move her beach chair or move from her beach chair and she has refused to do it. All right, here we go. I'm sorry about earlier, all right? It's my birthday. Happy oh. birthday. Thank you. How old are you? I'm 42. you got a lovely big belly. Well, it's a girl, so you know. You don't have kids. Yes, I have two daughters. Where are they? How old are they? Uh, Bianca is 25 and Martha is 23. No. I mean, you're too young. You must have started really early. Look, I'm sorry about earlier as well. I was, I was feeling a bit anxious. Yeah. Well, you know, the son can do that. And, well, maybe your girls. Being away from your girls, you know? Yeah. Well, you'll see... Children are a crushing responsibility. Happy birthday. So that's the kind of person Lita is. Uh, I say she's uh, played by uh, Olivia Coleman in her older stage. Uh, in her younger stage, she's played by the amazing Jesse Buckley. Uh, and she is the kind of person who says to pregnant women, children are a crushing responsibility. Uh, so um, Irene Papoulos has several major advantages over the rest of us. A, you've read the Elena Ferrante novel. B, you're Greek. 
So I feel like you should go first. And I'm just going <laughs> to, given all of that, you should just say whatever you want to say to get us started here. Okay. Well, I, I actually watched the movie Cold first. I didn't even know it was an Elena Ferrante novel. Um, and I, I, I had a fairly negative, you know, I had a WTF, if we're allowed to say that, reaction to it. Then I read the novel, then I watched the movie again. So I, I you know, so that, that so we have like, my my under my feeling about the movie has developed a lot, but it, but I have to say off the back, since you mentioned that I'm Greek, you know that it took place on a Greek island, and but none of the Greeks came to life at all, except for sort of you know rowdy, mean adolescents. And I wish there was more of the. I wanted to see more of the island. You know, there were so many close-ups, which were, which I do think worked for the storytelling. But I wanted to say, just pull back. Let me see the whole island. Let me see the town. Let me see how beautiful it is. But um, but and and the story, uh, you know, at first can strike struck me as um, very disappointing in the sense that I didn't know what the motivations of the of the character were, even though it, it was fun to watch. It was interesting. There were interesting scenes, but I felt um, frustrated. Now I have more of an understanding because I. Uh, you know, after reading the novel, but I think it's interesting the choices that Maggie Gyllenhaal made when she adapted the book, and I have some problems with those. But anyway, that's my starting point. Well, that's an interesting starting point. Well, Tanisha, to Irene's point, I think one of the reasons we don't, there isn't kind of a pullback where we see this big, bustling, beautiful Greek island is because this isn't really about that, right? This is mostly about the interior lives uh, of probably two different women and one, one of those women at two different ages and, and kind of what they do about what's going on with their feelings. But I'd just love to hear you react. I think you're, you know, the interior interior sort of dialogue and that commitment to that story feels very actor-centric. And it's not surprising that Maggie Gyllenhaal, both as a writer and director, has created this piece that is is so indulgent from an actor's sensibility. I kind of move with you, Irene. I wish that uh, the camera pulled back a lot more, not only just to, to capture the landscape and sort of give us a, a sense of place, of real place of where we are, but also it just feels like Maggie is in love with these actors and their work so much that we must be on top of it to experience it, which felt, if anything, it actually made me feel farther away um, from what they were doing. So, that, so I'm sort of in like the not every actor should be a director or sometimes you've got to take your actor brain off um, and consider the best way to tell the story because I'm not quite sure this one landed. It felt like it needed a couple more people in the room with Maggie, both as she was writing it and then when she was editing it um, and maybe a different DP. I don't know. It, 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 it left me both curious because I know Maggie is a, is a mom um, and I'm sure that that's what made her gravitate towards the material. Um, but it sort of left me in a very odd place about why this art now. All right. Uh, DP would be director of photography, I think. Um, yes, uh, sorry. Per, per, person, person who didn't, didn't pull back the camera. Uh, so, uh, so Rebecca, Rebecca, rather than priming you in any particular way, I mean, maybe just react to what we've uh, heard so far. Yeah, I mean, I had the same initial reaction kind of being unmoored and disoriented by this film and not quite sure if I liked it. But like many other movies, it then really stuck in my brain and I thought about it nonstop. I had lots of conversations about it. And then I watched it a second time 
And now I kind of love it. I think that the things that threw me off initially, which were that it was just sort of really layer upon layer of ambiguity. You don't really understand this woman's motivations. And on top of that, there's a lot of situational ambiguity. You're not exactly sure like what the deal with this place she's staying in. Why is it populated only by foreigners? What's the deal with this family? Are they in the mob? Are they not? There's just so much that's confusing. And I think that's what really bothered me at first. But now I think that's kind of the rub of the movie is that the ambiguity forces you to kind of fill in the blanks with your own opinions on what it means to be a mother, how you occupy that maternal role. I heard Maggie Gyllenhaal describe it kind of as a Rorschach test. And I feel like that's what she was trying to do. And in certain places, I don't think it was as successful in others. But in terms of like what a mother feels about the job and responsibility of motherhood, I do think the way this is all structured is to make you supply the gaps with your own opinions. And I think that that's really powerful. Like all these questions, there's a million different interpretations of them. Why does Lita take this doll from the child? Why is there rotted fruit? What's up with this cicada and the violent pine cones? I mean, there's just a million crazy things happening, but all these reactions to it, I think are intended to be valid. Right. That makes sense. <laughs> I like the violent pine cones. Um, <laughs> or, or yes, and that's another what I, I would first of all, I agree with everything that everybody said so far. And and you know, Tanisha, as usual, you've got me thinking because I, I wouldn't have said what you said about just too much of the sort of in the face of uh, Jesse Buckley and Olivia Coleman and, and Dakota Johnson. Uh, but now that you say it, I'm thinking maybe that's one of the reasons that. I struggled a little bit with this film. I mean, I think I sort of came out where you did, Rebecca. I think it's really, a really interesting, maybe as a Rorschach blot or something like that. Although, Irene, I'd be interested to know how, like, what you think about what you've heard now so far. <laughs> to me, to me, ultimately, I should just declare at least one of my prejudices. I think it is a movie about someone who is pathologically disenchanted with being a mother to a point where she inflicts uh, punishments, unnecessary punishments, uh, emotional punishments uh, on her children, her two two daughters when they're little, and then seems to be sort of very weird about them now that they're 23 and 25, uh, and and that she's assuming that this character played by Dakota Johnson, who now has a very young daughter named Elena, of all things, uh, probably hates it every bit as much as she does because Nina right now is very, very very unhappy, I think, in both their marriage and, and with motherhood of kind of a whiny little kid. Uh, but I don't know, Irene, we're, we're, now you've processed so much of this. I mean, you've seen the thing twice now and read the book. What, what are we either getting or missing? Um, you know, it's interesting that you say pathologically disenchanted with motherhood. I mean, she's she's looking back because when I saw it the first time, I said, oh, you know, come on, how, why is that so present in her mind now? She's want, she wants to go have a nice vacation. Can't she just have the nice vacation in the present moment? But then I started, but I've been reflecting about, you know, as a mother who has a, a, a child in his, in his 20s, I, I, you know, I was thinking, yeah, but I do sometimes think back and think, wow, I wish I had done this differently. I wish I had done that differently. Maybe I was wrong. Maybe I was too selfish to do that other thing. And so in a way, it, it becomes about, that kind of reflection back and 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 thinking almost to the in her case the point of just obsessiveness um, about about the decisions she made and the choices she made you know part of me felt like wait a minute how how much did she have to do the things she actually did in order to get the things she wanted there could have been another way for her to work it out um, but in terms of the the story uh, you know I think I think that is it, it's really about her inner experience of 
who am I and why did I why did I do this? Why did I live like this? Why did I live my parenting like that? You know, or trying to sort of come to terms with it or or understand it in some way. And so that makes me feel more sympathetic. I also really also have to say that, and this is maybe we'll go also with station 11, the idea that whatever you want to get out of it is valid feels a little bit too, like I want a movie to, to give me more than that. You know, I, I want the movie to have a perspective on it of some sort, or at least to feel like I see the movie having a perspective on it. And I think this one is kind of, yeah, I guess, I guess I would go to the, she's, she's, she, she just, she just couldn't, she just couldn't be the kind of mother that she felt like that some people think she's supposed to be. And that really messed her up. Right. We're sort of dancing around something that kind of gets revealed about halfway through the movie. And I think we should continue to dance around it. But I mean, this isn't, I don't think, a sort of qualitative question. Well, she couldn't quite be the mother that other people thought she should be. I mean, she does something really pretty horrible. Um, And and, and to me, that's to me, one of the reasons she's struggling is because she knows she did something really, really horrible. And she did it, I would like to say, like to add also, for the sake of a rather small prize, you know, I mean, partly for, I guess, maybe another man, but also for the sake of being like, you know, it was not, it wasn't like she went off to work in Africa with you know people struggling with famine. This is for the rather small prize of you know, going to academic conferences and talking about translating Yeats into Italian, <laughs> which, which seems like not a not a big enough brass ring necessarily for the huge sacrifice other people I have mean, to make. I mean, I think for an academic, I, 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 so I'm the the one with the young children mm-hmm. currently, yeah. and. Being a mom to young children is a savage life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is an exhausting life. I think, Irene, you're probably looking back on the outside of it. Because I, do, my mother does this too. And she recalls our childhood as like this really magical, wonderful thing. And my childhood was pretty amazing, all things considered. But I also recall the savage moments when my mother who was an attorney like was trying to be both a working mother and a a working adult and a present mother and a lover to her husband and uh, and a lover for herself um and so those are the places and probably why i'm also disenchanted because i'm like deep in the soup of where the story (laughs) is is trying to be um i actually you know and, and I think Maggie says this in, in one of her interviews, you know, yes, it's a nuclear option. Yes, it's one that she would never consider, but she fantasizes about it, mm. right? Because in these in this moment when, I almost sent you guys a, a photo when we were sending our emails of me watching one of these projects and Maddox, my youngest son, underneath my arm and London, my oldest son, crawling on top of my head and the (laughs) dog in between my legs. And it's suffocating, right? And also, like, if I were to take the picture, you would probably be like, oh my God, that's so amazing. That's so beautiful. That's so wonderful. (laughs) Um, So I think, you know, throwing the doll out the window or or closing the door so hard that the glass pane breaks, I think is not a foreign experience for most moms. Yeah, but I bet, you, we, I bet you don't refuse to kiss their boo-boos when they're crying and begging you to kiss I mean, their boo-boos. I mean, Colin, you'd be surprised, right? <laughs> like, because if, if the moment that got them to the boo-boo is one that you've been telling them, do not do this thing, do not do mm. this thing, do not do this thing, do not do this thing, and they do the thing, it is sometimes hard to move past your ego to kiss the boo-boo. Yeah, I, I sort of I remember stuff like that too. 
I, yeah, because we're still full human. We're, yeah. We are not, you know, the mom of our imaginations. We're the mom in the moment. And and that, I think, is the place where this, this movie lands. And I think, to your point, Irene, about, you know, every opinion is valid. I actually think that the director and the project is too afraid to make a hard case for the hardness of it. And so it becomes a psychological thriller that it doesn't need to be. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. I, yeah, Rebecca, I'd love to get your thought also about what Irene said, that idea that Irene is not happy with Rorschach blots. Um, although, actually, Tanisha, basically, you just described your that family scene as a Rorschach block. I, I use it. A lot of people would be looking at it going, oh, what a wonderful scene, and, <laughs> and not mm-hmm. seeing how incredibly stressful it, it could also be. But, uh, but, but in art, in, in the arts, Rebecca, um, you know, do, do we need a piece of art to come down in a certain place? I think in this specific place, we absolutely do. I don't think there's a ton of art out there about mothers that are angry about being a mother. And I don't think we have a lot of representation of anti-maternal people. Not to say that Lita isn't maternal, but she struggles with being maternal. It's it's a chore for her. It's not doesn't none of this comes naturally or effortlessly. And I think part of her action in the movie is to prove to herself that she does have those traits, even though the evidence in her past history suggests that it's not so simple. So I think that there is absolutely space for this. And it was really refreshing to see a piece that kind of gave you a portrait of a mother who is not only sad, but also angry at the position she's in. I, you know, as I've watched my friends start to have children and I can see sort of from outside the family unit, how much mothers are asked to do and how much emotional burden on top of working, domestic tasks, making sure everyone's boo-boos are kissed and, you know, dinner's on the table. It is an enormous burden. It's made me reflect on my childhood and have a lot of sympathy and regret about how I sort of took my mother for granted a lot of the time and wanted her to be this you know, unflappable superhero. And I think to have a movie kind of get into that interiority and say like, you know, a lot of women are frankly aggravated by this situation and don't want to be in the situation. I found it really refreshing and, uh, and powerful. I want to do an early endorsement and say that if anybody listening and, and Rebecca, you for that matter are intrigued by this, if you haven't heard the episode of audacious Kion Wolf show from last year, where people talk Exactly about this. Um, mm. The people who talk about this, I think, did not want to be identified by their full names. But she, she talked. She found people, particularly mothers, willing to talk about the fact that they don't enjoy being a mother, that they had it to do all over again. They wouldn't do it. Uh, you know, that it just it just isn't satisfying to them in the way that it's supposed to be. So and it's a remarkable uh, episode. I mean, it's just, just I, I've never heard anything like it before. I wound up emailing Kayone and our boss, Katie Tularski, and saying, if when we're nominating stuff, you're nominating stuff for awards, nominate this episode because nobody's ever heard this before. And, and now here it is in The Lost Daughter as well. Hey, I wanted to ask one last let's question. Yeah. Yeah. I was just saying, and let's be clear. I mean, Leda, the, the end of the movie is Leda having this very lovely conversation with her daughters. Uh, with one of her daughters and doing, you know, one of these like mundane things that became a ritual, you know, the the un unpeeling of the orange. So I think like we we too often want to put moms into a tribe of rageful and angry and hating this job, as opposed to like inside the role are tough moments. Mm. And sometimes it's hard to see beyond the tough moments, but that doesn't make the entire thing a wash or the entire thing horrible. It is it is that we so often just talk about the beauty of motherhood and not 
the other side of the coin. Totally. And I love actually that the movie ends the way it does because it's not, I have abandoned my children and not, I'm going to spoil, I apologize. She comes back to the children after three years, right? And, and one of the characters says, well, why do you come back? And she says, you know, something to the effect of like, they're mine and I and I love them and I want to be with them, right? It's, it. we, we want the narrative to be clean on motherhood. Um, and I think if there's one place that this movie succeeds, it's that it doesn't try to do that. Yeah, I, I would say if anybody's worrying that the end of the movie was just spoiled, I would simply say that I don't agree with that interpretation of what's happening at the end of the movie. Same. Uh, I, I don't think that's what's happening at all. Uh, so it, it, once again, because of its Rashomon-like qualities, um, it would probably be hard to spoil the end of the movie. But I don't, I, I don't particularly think that that's what's going on. I did want to quickly ask anybody, and then I think we probably need to go to break. Um, to me... Like Olivia Coleman is marvelous. She can do no wrong. Uh, she, you know, seems to be able to get any part she wants these days, and she deserves <laughs> she deserves them. To me, the person who sells this movie is Jesse Buckley. Jesse Buckley's performance <sighs> is completely amazing, and and I mean, I'm a huge fan of hers uh, anyway, and and have loved her and three or four other things. But this, so who just gasped? Was that you, Rebecca? Yeah, I okay. love Jesse Buckley, and I thought she was just absolutely stole the show. You know, as you said, Olivia Coleman can do no wrong. I could watch her read the phone book, but Jesse Buckley just took that role and ran with it. And I think she is just one to watch and should be on everyone's radar for the next big thing. Right. You'd have yeah, to. Yeah, go ahead. Can I, mean, I just yeah. disagree yeah. with that for a second? Sure. Um, and just say really quick, like, I, you know, everything is a Rorschach test to some extent, you know, so it's not the Rorschach test-ness of it that, that I object to. It's just the vagueness of it, you know? And so that gets for me to Jesse Buckley's performance because how mean is she? You know, like there is, there is, I wanted more in her acting, actually, that 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 told me more about what was going on, that she would grow up to be this person that Olivia Coleman is and and how and 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 how big of a how big of a break is there. And, you know, I don't know. I didn't quite I, I, I wanted I, I wanted to know more about right. her from the I mean, I loved her, too, but I felt like, yeah, but she keeps flipping, you know, and, and I didn't quite feel, I feel like I understood her. Well, Tanisha would probably argue that that's a problem with the script and the direction and the editing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and and Tanisha, as usual, is probably right about that. Uh, but I, I actually do think that Buckley sells the, the future lead up pretty well in that performance. But this is great because we didn't agree uh, about something, which is a problem with the nose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We need to disagree more. All right. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. The FDA has recently approved ZepBound, a new medication for chronic weight management. Dr. Davida Umashankar, Hartford HealthCare's System Medical Director of Medical Weight Loss, tells us more. ZepBound helps decrease hunger and increase satiety levels. Taking this medication for 72 weeks, people can see at the highest dosage approximately 48 pounds of weight loss. So definitely a powerful drug and another powerful tool that we have to utilize to help individuals who struggle with obesity. 
For those ready to explore their medical weight loss options, Dr. Umashankar has advice on the first, most important step. I don't think anyone knows you better than your own primary care physician. So having that conversation whenever you feel ready is so important because these medications are quite powerful and do need to be monitored on a regular basis. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. In the U.S., we tend to think of slavery as a Southern thing. Slavery in New England has been intentionally erased. The story we tell is this is family slavery. So it comes off as very benign and not dehumanizing. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. Connecticut's own Jacques Pepin is a culinary icon. When you make a contribution to Connecticut Public today, you can experience a once-in-a-lifetime dinner with the acclaimed PBS chef and author on Monday, May 6th at the gorgeous Oceanfront Madison Beach Hotel in Madison, Connecticut. Sponsored by Isana Plastic Surgery Center and Med Spa and Fuchs Financial. For tickets, visit ctpublic.org slash Pepin. Uh, we're back. Here's the second uh, segment of the news with Rebecca Castellani, Denisha Dugan, and Irene Papoulis. In 2014, um, the novel Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel was published. Um, Rebecca and I had essentially the same experience, which was to sit down with a novel and <laughs> kind of not get up until it was done or just like a whole Saturday. Just that's what it was. Uh, it, it is one of those novels that goes by uh, like a, a fever dream uh, and is is just incredibly engrossing. So HBO has decided to uh, adapt it into a 10-part uh, series. It does begin with the onset of a pandemic uh, in the city of Chicago. It was Toronto in the book, I believe, but in the city of Chicago here. Uh, let's hear the beginning. Beginning of that, you're going to hear uh, Jivan Chaudhry. Jivan Chaudhry talking. To, he's one of the uh, main characters of the book, uh, and he is talking to his sister, who's an emergency room nurse. Uh, just as this, or maybe she's a doctor. I forget. She's a doctor, I think. Uh, as the uh, pandemic is descending. Hi. Hi. Okay. I wasn't supposed to be at work today, but I got called back into the ER an hour ago. Sixteen-year-old flew in from Moscow last night. Presented with flu symptoms. We've never seen a flu like this before. It's chaos. Yeah, I don't know. It sounds kind of bad. I was going to ask if you wanted to get a drink, but I guess you're working late tonight. Laura and I are in a fight. Ronnie, where the I lost my job at flower shops. Steven, it's too late to run. You need to get to Frank. Don't believe a word the news says. The city's going to be People are walking around already exposed, and they don't even know it. Avoid contact with anyone. Just you, just Frank. Okay, but this happens, though, right? I mean, this happens. This is happening? Frank. Lock yourselves in, build a barricade. It's your best chance at surviving. Surviving? Yes, Jeevan, that is what I'm trying to tell you. All right, so um, I, I don't know how much the plot is complicated. I don't want to try to summarize too much of it. <laughs> it's really complicated, I guess. Uh, but w- what is basically going to happen is the little girl named Kirsten, who is an actor in a production of King Lear, uh, is going to wind up in the company uh, of Jeevan, uh, a man she has just met moments ago. But as the world around both of them dies, uh, they flee to a high-rise apartment inhabited by Jeevan's brother Frank uh, and try to ride out as much of the pandemic as they can 
again together, uh, then we will be thrust mostly about 20 years into the future uh, when we do see uh, Kirsten. She's now joined a, 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 an itinerant group of entertainers. You know, pretty much modernity as we knew it is gone. Uh, it's commemorated in a strange museum at an airport, uh, but everything we knew about it is gone. Uh, but still, culture of a sort remains. This is a group that plays uh, symphonic music, kind of, uh, and also performs Shakespeare, kind of. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so that's kind of the plot of the movie, too, uh, the series, excuse me. So, um, well, Rebecca, you and I are, we're the Irenes of this segment. We've, we've read the book, so we get to go first. I just did. Uh, you, you get us started. I think the biggest takeaway is that this adaptation is very different from the book, and yet it is an incredible, perfect adaptation, which I think is a very rare thing. It's a much slower burn than the novel. I know, Colin, you said at the beginning of this that you plowed through the book when you read it, as did I. Um, and the show just refutes that at every turn. I, When I realized it was out, there was already three or four episodes out, and I was like, oh, man, I'm just going to watch this all in one sitting. And at the end of the first episode... I shut my computer and I just sat with it and I really wasn't able to go back to it for another whole week. So I ended up watching it very episodically and letting it just sort of wash over me. And it just captures all of the sense of the novel Station Eleven without necessarily capturing the same sound. Like they're telling the same story, but in different ways. And it's the feeling that it just manages to capture so perfectly. And in some ways, improves upon the source text. It explains some of the motivations better than the source text did. So I think it's just absolutely a stunning translation of the original. So, Irene, this returns us to your one of your complaints uh, in the first segment. You don't like things that just wash over you. Uh, you don't like things that are Rorschach tests. You want there to be some uh, affirmation on the part of the auteur as to what this is all about. Uh, how did that work for you in Station Eleven? Um. I didn't get too much of that, <laughs> but um, I mean, I had some I had some questions that I really wanted answers to. At the same time, I loved the characters so much. I felt so uh, fond of them and affectionate toward them for the most part, the main characters, that that uh, that alone uh, really pulled me in. You know, that and and also just the the bleakness, but the sort of vicarious sense of wow, the end of civilization is that where we're moving to? You know, and and it just so I found it very moving just for that reason, you know, in a way. So emotionally, I found it very moving and I didn't want, I didn't need more, but intellectually I was saying, wait a minute, what was going on in that book that they were all reading? And is, by the way, do we know, do you know that when you read the book? What's in the book? Oh, right. So we, we need to explain a little bit about that. So one of yeah. the, there's two kind of cultural centerpieces to this. One of them is theater, uh, uh, kind of broadly construed. Uh, and, and then the other one uh, is this graphic novel that has fallen into the hands of two children, people who are children at the, during the onset of the pandemic and, and has been used. It's a graphic novel that has been used by these uh, children as they grow up to interpret the reality around them. And I would say, Rebecca may contradict me, that I, I felt like in the book I had a little bit more of an idea uh, of the graphic novel and why it was important. We see flashes of it uh, here. Uh, let's circle back to that in a second. But uh, So, Tanisha, I, I'm almost guaranteeing, guaranteeing that you're going to have problems. <laughs> with Station Eleven <laughs> that are very similar to your problems with The Last Daughter in terms of directing, uh, uh, writing exposition, and probably especially editing. 
I think that you both, you being Colin and Rebecca, had an advantage to reading the book. And I actually ordered it last night because I was like, I'm clearly missing something because I can't. But perhaps it's also a Rorschach test. <laughs> I'm a theater maker and I'm so utterly annoyed by all of them, by this troop of actors, by... Uh, by, by I, I, it just all just annoyed me that it, it's been hard to get through many of the episodes. Um, and I feel like this is something that I should like, question mark. Um, but, you know, from from the colorization, you know, I feel like, yes, it's the blue. They've taken the blue pill. It's, you know, <laughs> I don't it 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 was a it was a hard one. It was a hard pill for me to swallow. Well, um, I, I want to ask you. I, I want to ask you a little bit more about that, Tanisha, because <laughs> I actually do think, Tanisha, that one of the things that they do kind of poorly in this series is the theater piece of it. Is the way in which, like, ultimately, considering that it's a troupe that performs mostly Shakespeare, although it seems like very modernized and at times improvised versions of, of Shakespeare. But there's almost no Shakespeare at all anyway. You know, I mean, you see a lot of people who are about to do a play and you see a lot of people who have just done a play. But, you know, the role that culture should play at that moment, whatever it's supposed to do for people in terms of sustaining them or nurturing them, I think that is something that you could argue is is missing. I don't, I don't think that's just you or the fact that we read the book and you didn't. I, I think it's a real problem. I think it's a real problem because there's an assumption that if you say King Lear, you know enough about King Lear to be able to fill in the blanks around why that reference makes sense, right? Like, and also, and I say this, this probably makes a lot of theater makers really sad, like the the action of going to the theater as it's shown in this play is kind of like, the way in which we live it, which is that it's it's an activity, not an actual cultural like meal, right? Like it's a thing to do so that your your group of friends can go to dinner and have a conversation about what you missed when we were together once before. Um, so it's not surprising. In some ways, it like makes total sense that the play is not the thing. It's the stuff around the play that's actually the thing. Yes. I completely agree with that, that it's less about having all the references and more about the feeling of experiencing arts. Like, I think that there's a great, I don't want to spoil this, but and I won't even say who says it, but in, I think it's episode nine or 10, one of the characters calls Station Eleven, which is the graphic novel that's floating through this universe. He just exclaims the universe, it's so pretentious. And I think that there is <laughs> part of this book that play and the show that plays with the, this idea that art is the providence of those that are educated and pretentious and, you know, these this traveling circus could probably be putting their time and energy to better use but it, it, the last episode really takes you into the it gives you more of an actual scene of a play and you see the reactions of people watching the play and these are people young people that have grown up since the apocalypse started they have no context for Shakespeare they've never read Hamlet and watching their faces light up as they process the action on stage I mean that's what to me sitting and watching live performances about. Like, I don't necessarily need to understand all of the language around Hamlet or King Lear, but sitting there and watching it, you know something special is happening. And to me, I think that's always been the hopeful current underneath Station Eleven. 
Although, Irene, I feel as though one of the things that the series does dangle. First of all, I, I want to quote Stephen Metcalf. I was calling him Stephen. He's the one who's on the Slate Culture Gab Fest. He did have a great line. He says, the, you know, the premise of the movie is that 99% of humanity is now dead. And of the 1% that survives, <laughs> half of them are barred theater majors. But, um, but there's a way, Irene, I think, in which the movie at least dangles the possibility is that if we could understand Hamlet, it's Hamlet in particular, I think, uh, you know, and in fact, in the final episode, which just moved hours ago, and I just watched the little beginning of it, uh, you know, one of the characters who hasn't been acting in the play is told, you're Gertrude, you know, and, and there's sort of a sense of, we could just understand Hamlet and figure out who we are and figure out, well, does Claudius have a point of view, point of view that's worth considering here? And I mean, if you could just sort of sort all that stuff out, um, maybe you'd feel a little bit better about your place in the world. I'm just, I don't know. You're the, you teach, you teach. Yeah. You, you okay. Teach, so teach yeah. us. Yeah. No, I, I, I can't. I mean, because there is something about, you know, even if it's the end of the world, people still have to do art and they feel this this compulsion to to be on stage. And in that sense, it doesn't even matter what it is, what 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 as, as Rebecca said, like what they're doing. But they they can't you know, there's a couple of scenes, even including one early where they can't do X until we do the play. You know, we have to do the play. That's just a given. We just have to. You know, so there's this. This this compulsion to do art no matter what that I think is beautiful, but in a way it's you know I think it's interesting to go into more of the specifics about Claudius's you know are they what are they trying to do with him in that last episode is, I think is a really good question. Watch the last um, episode. This is all <laughs> going to be resolved for both of yeah. you. I can't wait. Yeah. <laughs> is it resolved though? I mean, I watched it and I wasn't in, entirely sure that it, that it was that that particular question was revol- resolved. I don't um, want to give any spoilers on air, but I'll debate this with you later. All right. Okay. <laughs> all right. I'm not, we're not, I'm not going to look at my email until uh, I've seen the last episode. So I don't know, Tanisha, one argument I think that we could make is that it's a, but I'm not sure that you're going to agree. But to me, it's a strangely beautiful thing. I, I should say, even though I've, I can find ways to pick this thing apart, I've basically enjoyed this adaptation. Uh, I've wanted to stay with it all the way through. I actually think the penultimate episode, episode nine, is was especially oh. fascinating to me. Uh, it has to do, it, like the Lost Daughter, has to do with babies and kind of how you get them, and and it has to do with a lot of other things too. Uh, but I mean, to me, it does look. There are moments in this series where it kind of does look like the John Everett Millay painting of Ophelia. These kind of kind of really sort of rich colors, you know, and and these sort of beautiful landscapes, which mash up against scenes of devastation or deserted gas stations, which are starting to look kind of cool because they've been deserted for twenty years. I, I don't know. I, I really enjoyed looking at this thing, which I don't usually say about a TV series. But Tanisha, I'd love to hear you on this. You're right. I don't wholly agree. Although I think <laughs> the landscapes are probably my favorite part. I, you know, again, I've only gotten through half of the series I'm on. Uh, I completed episode five. Uh, and I think the the image that still stands to me uh, as a striking example of ugliness is the middle of the airport where we first get to see uh, the the talents of, of our 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 actor, our true, our, our, our lead troubadour. Um, and, and it just all feels just, it's just gray. It's just all very gray. Um, and, and for me, it feels like this novel really made people excited when it first came out and it felt like, oh my God, it's a story about a pandemic and a post pandemic. 
this is what people need right now. Um, and I'm not quite sure it is, right? And so like, for me, the, the most beautiful visuals are the, is the look at the world when there's nobody in it. You know, I, I loved, you know, when they were, uh, Javine, I'm going to say his name wrong. Um, Jeevan and, and the young girl are at the um, subway station and then you cut to the subway station 20 years, you know, after mm. people have deserted. That was the most, those moments are the most satisfying to me. And perhaps maybe I'm looking for a, a dystopic future in which there are no humans. <laughs> and our one way of productivity isn't making Shakespeare. I don't know. I think I'm also annoyed that like of all the theater to make, why the bard? Like why? <laughs> like why is that the thing that we center? I I, yeah, I don't know. That's that could be just, a whole separate conversation. Hey, very quickly here, just so you hear a little bit more of this. We haven't talked about one of the key characters. He's known as the prophet. Uh, he is clearly uh, embittered and untrustworthy and is particularly distrusted uh, by the by this character of Kirsten, who's played marvelously by Mackenzie Davis, this kind of ferocious kind of warrior thespian uh, <laughs> <laughs> who tries to preserve order and keep away the bad people. Uh, we're going to hear um, her protege, uh, Alexandra, talking to the prophet and Kirsten chiming in here. Uh, here we go. Cody's mom died out there in Detroit. You must have felt so desperate. She's sick and you fell and got hurt. She was gone by the time that I got back to her and Cody. I guess I had some idea that we'd find some medicine for my wife. I'm not sure I can raise Cody right. You know, out here without a mom. <laughs> Is he like 17 or 18? He's pretty much raised. Can I ask you about those tattoos? It's for all the people I've killed. The monsters, we're the monsters, I guess. Where did you hear that? It just came into my head. We do or do not know at that particular moment that uh, that's actually a quote from uh, this graphic novel that seems to be kind of the sacred text for some of the people in this uh, series. So uh, we just the reason really to play this quote. So the the prophet, we should say, I mean, we're pretty sure that he has a plan. Maybe nobody else knows what they're doing, but the prophet knows what he wants to do, and it's not good. Although I would like to, just as a kind of alternative or opposing viewpoint, say that Cat Pastor, our technical producer, has slacked to us. The prophet is fine as hell. I'd follow him around, uh, and he'd be trying to get rid of me by day four. Uh, so, <laughs> so there you go. Another He has that effect on women. I think, yeah. like, I think they're the same for Jesus, too. They're all good looking. They get you going. <laughs> all right. So once again, we did not agree. We did not entirely agree about Station Eleven. So there are. So I think Rebecca and I are pro. Tanisha thinks the whole thing could use quite a bit of work. Uh, and Irene, I'm not sure. I know you basically were okay with this, right? Or not? I, I think it's worth worth. It's definitely worth watching. I mean, part of it. I, I I understand why Roberta had to take a pause in the middle because it's not. It's it's very intense. It's not really bingeable in the sense of you, you just want. To take a break after certain episodes, but it is it pulls you back into it. To it, you want to find out what happens. 
Right. I would say that I did three nights of yellow, uh, three episodes of Yellow Jackets one night, and three episodes of Station Eleven the next night, and I was just not feeling good about humankind. Is it a cry for help? Yeah, I really do. I think I did call a couple one eight hundred numbers just to see if anybody would talk to me. Uh, All right. I'm saying in this moment of humanity, it is like so not what people need. I, I, I. I just, we just need to be a little more caring. Oh, see, I completely disagree. I think it's exactly what we need right now. All right. Oh, my God. I love this, I love this episode. I love the disagreement. We have to take a break. We'll be back with some recommendations. All right, we're back. As usual, our technical producer is Kat Pastor, uh, who I would follow through an apocalyptic wasteland. I would assume she was probably going to get out uh, if there's any out to be gotten. Uh, and uh, Jonathan McPants is, of course, the producer of The Nose. Uh, now, uh, we have Rebecca Castellani, Tanisha Dugan, and Irene Papoulis as our panelists. We'll get some recommendations from them. Rebecca, why don't you start us off? So one of my major pandemic coping mechanisms has been playing board games. Um, And I've got two board game recommendations today. Mm. The first is a game called Wingspan, though we colloquially refer it as the bird game. And it is probably the world's most complicated board game to learn. It We bought it and it probably took us three months to actually ever play it because every time we tried to read the instructions, we were like, what is happening here? But we finally learned how to play and it is the most fun. We've taught it to lots of people. I'm becoming kind of a wingspan cult leader at this point. Um, it's the most beautifully illustrated board game I've ever played. I can't even begin to tell you how to play it or even give you a summary because as I said, it's quite complicated. But once you learn and have cross that hurdle. It is great fun. The second one I'm going to recommend is a game that was actually created by the Decemberists as a set piece for one of their videos, but then they turned it into a real game. And it's called Illamat. Um, It's when you set the whole game up, it basically looks like you're trying to summon some kind of demon. It's like got a kerchief and tokens and these things that kind of look like tarot cards, but it's essentially a math driven card game and it's super fun. So if you're looking for some new board games. I highly recommend Wingspan and Illimat. Yes, I'm looking up Illimat, I-L-L-I-M-A-T, in case you're wondering. Correct. Uh, all right, uh, Tanisha, you're up next. Awesome. Sorry, I was on mute. <laughs> so I, because this episode was so about uh, projects that were once books or that are books that were turned into uh, media, either I guess both of them were on television. Uh, so I'm going to uh, endorse The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. I know I'm super late to this party, um, but really loved the book. And I actually read it in companion with Passing um, that I wanted to read before I saw uh, uh, Rebecca Hall's version of that of that novel. Um, but The Vanishing Half is actually a better novel than Passing. So I am going to endorse that. Um, and I'm also going to endorse Spirit Healing in Unionville, Connecticut. It's a new sort of crystal shop. I know everyone always gets weirded out when I tell them about my witchy ways, but uh, I love a little crystal situation. Um, and Spirit Healing in Union is beautiful. It's right along the Farmington River. Um, so if you just want a place to sit and meditate before or after you buy your crystals, it's a it's a beautiful little shop, Spirit Healing in Unionville. All right. Uh, the other one is The Vanishing Half by uh, Britt Bennett. I'm not sure we said the name of the author. Uh, so, um, 
uh, by the way, Kat likes that place, and Lily Tyson really likes to play wingspan. So there you go. Oh, uh, great. <laughs> so, uh, Irene, you have the floor. Okay. So I have two, and they're both um, in genres that I don't usually pay, atten- pay a lot of attention to. One is sort of the romantic comedy genre, and it's a, and it's all, but it, it's a, it's directed by a woman and sort of half written by a woman, and it's kind of about the struggle that a woman has between career and and love. Um, it's called I'm Your Man, and it's on um, Hulu. It's in German. Uh, and it's a lot of fun. It's it's the woman was in um, a series called Deutschland '83 that I also really loved. But um, anyway, I'm your man. It's kind of fun and light and funny and a little bit thought provo- uh, provoking. And where do we find um, this? Uh, Hulu. Hulu. Okay. Yeah, and also on Hulu actually is this. Speaking of Danny Zavato, because I I I I can relate to Cat's uh, feeling about him. I was like, where have I seen this guy before? And he was in this uh, show called Penny Dreadful, which you might know as the series called City of Angels that takes place in Los Angeles. And it's this, it's kind of a supernatural fantasy genre, which isn't something that I would be drawn to. And I kind of like said, yeah, whatever, with the supernatural fantasy parts. But I found it to be really a really interesting show about Los Angeles in, the thir- in 1938. Um, and he's in it. He's the star of it. It's got a religious cult. It's it's very um, fun and interesting. And historically, according to um, my partner, who's a historian of Latin America, historically true to the Mexican American experience in Los Angeles, much more or sensitive to it than than it than you know more sensitive sensitive to it than most. And um, and historically as accurate, fun, uh, interesting, and he's in it. So it's called Penny Dreadful City of Angels. Right. We should say that this actor who's being referenced is the person who plays the prophet uh, in, in Station Eleven. In Station Eleven, right. yeah. And uh, more cat pastor on Slack. I was expecting skinny backwoods guy and got Latino Jesus, she says, <laughs> describing the prophet. So um, I, I'm going to um, endorse Helena Bottom Carter in general. Uh, I'm just suddenly aware of how much I enjoy her work. But particularly since you're already on HBO to watch Station Eleven, this kind of dopey reunion thing of Harry Potter is sort of fun and you get everybody who's not dead basically everybody comes back and you get to see how they've aged and they tell little stories from the set and stuff like that and it's also just great to see Helena Bonham Carter acting for like a halfway normal person for once uh, I mean she just seems like she's in real life maybe not as crazy as some of the roles she plays uh, and I also in that connection want to endorse um, or recommend particularly because we so much about the lost daughter is about you know, maybe women doing things because of the circumstances that they're in that, you know, we really wish that they wouldn't do. Uh, The 1997 movie The Wings of the Dove, which is uh, an adaptation of Henry James, uh, features Helena Bonham Carter as sort of that kind of woman. Uh, And uh, Linus Roche, who I always enjoy watching as this kind of high-minded, young, middle-class Englishman. So, and it's all in, a lot of it's in Venice, and you get to look at Venice, and it's fun. I mean, it's and it's upsetting, too. Uh, all right. So thanks to this wonderful panel. Uh, I always like these shows because I just get pushed in all kinds of interesting directions that my, <laughs> my mind wouldn't necessarily have gone in. So thanks to Rebecca Castellani, Tanisha Dugan, Irene Papoulis. Uh, thanks to Jonathan McPants. Thanks to Kat Pastor. And thanks to you for listening. And here's Ronnie Spector to go to say goodbye. 